Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. This is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Lucia Raffinelli, who is the author of Promoting Justice Across Borders, The Ethics of Reform Intervention. This book was published in um, 2021 by Oxford University Press, and it is a combination of an understanding about international relations and political theory and the idea of justice. Um, But I'm going to ask Lucia to tell us all about that as we welcome her to the podcast and start off by asking her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hello, Lucia. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, Sure. So I guess to start off with a little bit about myself, I'm an assistant professor now at George Washington um, and I'm in the political science department and in the Elliott School for International Affairs. I did my graduate work, which this book is based on at Princeton, um, and I had a one-year postdoc after that at Chapman University out in California, where I also was fortunate to do a manuscript workshop on an early version of this manuscript. As far as how I sort of came to thinking about the book itself and the ideas in the book, I guess there are a few different motivating thoughts behind the book. One is just that there's really a lot of variety in global politics. Um, There are a lot of actors out there that are exerting influence on each other in lots of different ways. Uh, And in political theory, at least in normative political theory where I work, um, there's a big literature on the ethics of intervention, but it's with some exceptions pretty narrowly focused on state-led interventions and military or kind of traditionally coercive interventions. So like military humanitarian intervention is a kind of paradigm case that a lot of the literature talks about. And so one motivation behind the book was to try to expand that discussion uh, to think about other cases, other kinds of interventions, uh, other actors besides states and other ways that they try to promote their own ideas about justice around the world, not just via military force or coercion, but by all all kinds of other um, kind of tactics. Um, And another 
motivating thought behind the book was that if we paid attention to this very wide variety of different forms that intervention can take, that we might come to think differently about the ethics of intervention uh, than you know I think many of us often do. In particular, the, the idea was that there are lots of really serious moral objections to intervention um, that are very credible and often decisive against some kinds of intervention, but that doesn't mean that they're sort of decisive against all kinds of intervention. And so the goal of the book in that sense was to develop sort of a more nuanced set of ethical standards that we could use to judge when interventions of lots of different types were or were not morally justified. And when we're talking about interventions, and you sort of started off by explaining that, you know, there there's the big, big, but yet narrow school of thought um, in both international relations and political theory around the kinds of interventions. And so most people listening would think about, okay, so the United States intervened in a variety of countries um, economically. We've intervened with mer- military capacity for peacekeeping. Um, you know, we intervened in military capacity, perhaps not for peacekeeping. Um, So can you just back up and define a little bit more about what what this narrowness is with regard to interventions, but also to some degree, how to expand thinking about it? Yeah, sure. So the book is about a category that I call reform intervention, which I mean to be pretty broad. So it includes any attempt to promote justice in another society. So any sort of deliberate attempt to promote justice in another society. And, um, the reason for making that category so broad, um, is that I think that any attempt to promote justice in another society uh, is going to involve a lot of the same moral issues and raise a lot of the same moral questions, even if, you know, the exact kind of ethical standards that we should use to evaluate that intervention, um, you know, might change based on, say, who is doing the intervening or the tactics that they use or other kind of contextual elements of the case. So um, I talk about a few different cases in the book. So maybe it would be helpful just to sort of, you know, (laughs) preview some of those uh, to kind of illustrate the range of things that that I'm interested in talking about here. So, for example, uh, one case I talk about is the Palestinian boycott divest sanction movement, So, which, of course, has a lot of different parts to it. But one part that I find particularly interesting is the consumer boycott part. So here's uh, kind of in one sense, it's an intervention in that it's um, Palestinian civil society actors and other actors around the world who are trying to produce policy changes um, in Israel. Um, but it's not necessarily, you know, taking that conventional form of, you know, military intervention or at least in the com- consumer boycott aspect of it. It's not, you know, coercive economic sanctions or anything like that. Um, but it's rather, you know, trying to motivate lots of individual consumers to use their purchasing power in certain ways to encourage or discourage, uh, you know, certain political changes. Uh, Another case I talk about is uh, back in 2010, Arizona passed a kind of now infamous uh, anti-immigration bill, which uh, kind of did lots of things, some of which were ultimately struck struck down by the Supreme Court. Um, For example, it said that police could check someone's immigration status based only on the officer's, quote, reasonable suspicion that they might be undocumented, um, required all immigrants to acquire immigration registration records. Uh, 
records. It criminalized them taking jobs. Um, it allowed warrantless arrests based on only police suspicion that someone was undocumented. And in the wake of this law, which was challenged and opposed, um, several Latin American countries got together and submitted amicus briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court opposing the law. And one of the things they did uh, in their their sort of briefs was argue that this law was going to unfairly target not only Latin American countries' citizens who happened to be in the United States, but also just other Latinx appearing people who were in the United States and you know would be unfairly targeted by this law. And so here is a case where we have uh, these Latin American countries trying to produce a policy change in the United States uh, and invoking kind of concerns of justice uh, kind of in defense of that, uh, but they're doing it you know via the legal institutions of the United States itself. Um, I won't go through all the cases I talk about in the book, but just to sort of um, list some types. So I talk about international NGO work. Um, I talk about uh, conditional trade agreements as, uh, as a sort of one form of intervention. Um, I talk about uh, the recent European export ban on lethal injection drugs to the United States and, and other places. So that's kind of the range of range of cases that I talk about in the book. Um, and to go, you know, maybe back to your original question, I think. Uh, again, when we focus on and think about intervention as only involving that sort of paradigmatic case, you know, state military humanitarian intervention, we kind of miss out um, on the wealth of other other forms uh, that intervention can take and, and what moral issues, you know, they, they raise. And it's the moral issues or this sort of nebulous and giant question of justice um, that is also sort of... Um, engaging what you're you're looking at and so we often talk about in and this is often in a binary way right that there's particular interventions that are for good uh, making the world safe for democracy shall we say um, or you know to to protect a particular way of life um, or the in the integrity of a country. And part of what you're talking about is that we shouldn't necessarily also be bound by these kind of contexts of state borders before we get into the question of justice, that this is this is not, you know, just states against states in a certain sense. Um, can you explain a little bit about that, about the across border component? Yeah, definitely. So uh, I think one, you know, you're right. One thing that I try to do in the book is to show that there are kind of all these different ways that different political actors, including individuals, can engage in politics that crosses borders. And also to make the argument that some of that is morally permissible um, and that maybe even some, some of the time we have a moral obligation to do some of that. And in that sense, one kind of takeaway from the book or one thing I argue for in the book is that, um, you know, the, the project of achieving justice is not something that we should think of as a project we can only take on kind of with our fellow citizens within our own society. But it's a project that everyone in the world should take on. Um, and that's kind of the legitimate political concern of everybody. And so, uh, you know, one uh, I think one one goal of the book is, again, by investigating the ethics of these different types of interventions and by kind of expanding the scope of what we're talking about when we talk about intervention, uh, is again to show that some of those uh, ways of intervening in other societies 
can be morally permissible, even if you know we're right to think that many uh, interventions, maybe of that paradigmatic, you know, state military intervention kind in the past, have been morally objectionable. That doesn't mean we have to kind of write off uh, the whole practice of engaging with people in other societies in order to promote justice. And and so this idea of sort of a moral issue and moral permissibility um, or moral constraint sort of gets starts to get us towards this question of justice. My students always get mad at me when I teach political theory because we read, you know, Plato's Republic. And of course, justice is never really found. Um, <laughs> and they get really frustrated because it's, it's a long book. Um, so as you know, you know, anybody in, in the political theory business. Um, so in this question of justice, that is sort of um, wrapping your your research and 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 to some degree your discussion of intervention, obviously, what are we talking about? Not Socrates, obviously, um, but but how do we get our hands around this idea of morally permissible, morally appropriate, um, leaning towards justice? Great. Yeah, thank you. So you're right. I mean, of course, I can kind of say in the abstract, oh, yes, interventions that promote justice. Um, but there's this looming question of what actually does justice require? Um, and I, I mean, I say I do say something about that in the book, though I don't defend a, a you know full theory of justice. I don't kind of uh, defend a full view about what all the requirements of justice are. And there's reason for that. Um, well, there are a couple of reasons for it. One is that I think, you know, one of the really pressing and interesting and important moral questions that the book is trying to address is how do we as political actors who are kind of put in the position of making choices about how to do political action um, and who know that, you know, there are all of these competing views out there about what justice requires, how do we sort of promote or advocate for what we see as justice in a way that is still um, respectful of and acknowledging the fact that other people out there may disagree with us about what justice requires. Um, and, you know, that that recognizes those people as equals, moral equals to us, um, as people who make weighty claims about what justice requires and about how their lives should go. Um, so insofar as the book is trying to, you know, give us some standards that we can use to kind of promote what we see as justice, given that we know there is this pervasive disagreement about what justice requires, um, you know, its goal is not really to answer all those questions about what justice requires, but to kind of give us a way that we can hopefully engage even across borders um, in the project of trying to achieve justice when we know that First of all, we're fallible judges about what justice requires. And second of all, that other people are going to disagree with us about what justice requires. And so um, one of the things I say in the book is that I, th I think there's a lot about the question of what justice requires that is intentionally left open in the book, um, though it's not you know, all left open. So I do take some generally liberal principles to be, you know, I kind of take them as given as a starting point. So the idea that people are moral equals, the idea that justice requires that people, people be empowered to develop and pursue their own life projects, that people have basic rights to life, to some minimal amount of bodily security, uh, to the resources necessary for achieving some threshold level of functioning in their society, 
uh, to an adequate range of options for the course of their life, to freedom of conscience, uh, to democratic, in some sense, government, um, that you know people have a right to equal opportunity, and that whatever inequalities are present uh, kind of in our socioeconomic sphere should be justifiable in some way to the people who are disadvantaged. And so I kind of take those things, those values as a starting point, though there's still a lot, I mean, those are very general, intentionally, there's still a lot to work out about what those would all mean. Um, and I, I kind of intentionally leave leave a more specific, you know, answer to, to the question of what justice requires open for the purposes of the book. And and one of the points that you also sort of make, you make it very, very much in the brief introduction, but you also sort of take this up in the case, in some of the case studies that you are looking at is the, the perspectives that are, are coming into conflict or tension around how one can intervene and be respectful. Um, and I, I had a student this, this past year who was writing a, a, a capstone thesis on feminism in Morocco and Tunisia um, and getting to the, the definition of Islamic feminism um, was really important in terms of understanding feminism and also, you know, interventions on behalf of women's equality um, that wasn't Western in a lot of ways. And I think this is also a lot of what you're sort of talking about in terms of like, how does intervention work in a way that is not heavy handed? Yeah, definitely. And one of the, I think one of the you know main threads in the book is this idea that one dimension along which interventions can differ is the degree of control that the interveners are exercising over the recipients of the intervention. So there are some interventions, you know, where the interveners really are forcing recipients to kind of acquiesce to interveners' wishes. And maybe that's often what the paradigmatic, you know, military intervention looks like. Uh, but again, once we recognize that there are lots of other ways to intervene, we can also see that some interventions don't involve interveners exercising that degree of control or really even any control in some cases over recipients. So there are some interventions that are really more, you know, they look more like advocacy. They're more about persuasion. So one of the other cases, I, I which I mentioned, brief, mentioned briefly before that I talk about in the book is the case of Tostan, which is an international NGO that does um, basically democracy and human rights and public health promotion work in Western Africa. Um, and they have an interesting model. Uh, one of their sort of core goals or has become their, one of their core, core goals over the years has been to get the communities they work with to publicly declare that they will end female genital cutting. And they've achieved that goal in a lot of different communities. Um, and so there's a sense in which, you know, they're trying to kind of uproot practices that are in some cases well entrenched, um, you know, that some people have argued have a, 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 a kind of significant tie to the local cultures there. Um, but they're doing it in a way that doesn't, in my view, involve them actually exercising any control over the communities they work with or sort of forcing those communities to change their ways. So the model is basically that they run these uh, sort of community-based education classes that talk about 
public health and democracy and women's rights and all kinds of other topics. The, those classes are taught in local languages. Um, they, the curricula were collaboratively designed originally um, with participants themselves from the local communities. Uh, and another thing that Tostan tries to do is to set up basically local governance kind of committees that will outlast the presence of Tostan itself. Um, and so their model is, I argue in the book, very much about empowering local people to sort of take charge of their own, you know, the way their own uh, community is going to go forward and organize itself. Um, and, you know, they're, they have an agenda and that they're trying to promote democratic governance, they're trying to promote human rights, they're trying to promote women's rights. Um, but at the end of the day, it seems to be, you know, the, the people in those local communities themselves who have the right to decide whether or not they're going to take on any of Tostan's recommendations and, you know, more specifically, how they're going to kind of um, uh, drive their community's development forward in what direction that's, you know, that's left up to them. So in cases like that, I think, you know, there's a, th there's a promising model there because it does seem to be the case that, you know, though we have an intervention happening at the end of the day, it's still the people in the recipient community who decide for themselves what their society is going to look like. So they're deciding that, you know, kind of in response to input from elsewhere, uh, they're not necessarily being forced or coerced or even incentivized to do it in one way or another. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and 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 this example of toast on is also an interesting sort of idea of local control right that it's it's not coming from uh an international community it's not coming from per se another country um that's coming here and sort of wagging its finger and saying you need to do it this way um but this is also, you know, sort of when we think about the federalist system in the United States, there's a lot that is discussed about how local control, local capacity uh, is something that is much more reflective of the people who are there who are experiencing whatever the policy is. Um, can you explain a little bit about how this is also um, a nuance in terms of our understanding of how international relations works? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, the idea, you're right, the idea of local control definitely is playing, playing a role here. And, you know, I end up arguing in the book that in a lot of cases, for a few different reasons, interventions that are, you know, kind of collaborative, collaborative in some way with the local population, or that, you know, leave a lot of decision power up to the local population are going to be more desirable 
than uh, than other kinds of interventions where the interveners are exercising more control. That might be because you know those interventions where local control is more prominent are more effective, right? They sort of take root in a more permanent way. Um, but also, you know, I think it can be for the reasons I kind of just described, those interventions can show a degree of respect for the local population as people who have legitimate claims of their own to kind of decide how their own society is going to be run. Um, the I think maybe where the, the sort of nuance comes in is the idea that, in my view anyway, you know, we can value local control without having to think that there can be no influence at all from the outside, um, right? So if we value, you know, local control or collective self-determination of a given community, I don't think that means that we have to think, you know, this community must be completely isolated from any external influences. Uh, and I think sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes at least some people have the have the tendency to kind of go too far in that direction to think, well, if we if we want, you know, local people to control their own destiny, then that means there just can be no influence from any other community from anywhere else in the world. And, you know, I think one of the things I'm trying to do in the book, again, by kind of highlighting the variety of these different forms that that influence can take is to show that not all of it is, you know, sort of scary and tyrannical um, and oppressive, but it can take good forms as well. Uh, and, you know, maybe I should add, I think in another one of the recommendations I end up making in the book is that we should adopt a sort of presumption in favor of what I call counter hegemonic interventions. So interventions that um, sort of challenge existing geopolitical power hierarchies where the interveners themselves maybe occupy a less powerful position than the recipients. So like that um, intervention from the Latin American countries into the U.S. that I described earlier. Um, and if we, you know, think of intervention as also perhaps happening in that direction, too, I think that's you know, another way in which we can maybe make it, we can recognize that it doesn't always have to look so, so scary and oppressive uh, and, you know, imperialistic. And I wanted to ask you specifically about that because I was really struck by the way that you sort of put this in the conclusion of the book that, um, you know, it, we, we often think about the intervention, particularly coming from the perspective of somebody in the United States as the United States intervening someplace else because we are so big and powerful and mighty and economically strong and militarily strong and we know what's right um, also. But that as you say, there's also the, the flip side of that, that if, um, if an, an NGO or a country is going to intervene or an international organization is going to intervene, then they also have to be open to being, to having that intervention themselves. Um, which is again, something that is not usually in the scope of the, um, traditional understanding of intervention. Um, and I and I know you mentioned the amicus briefs by the Latin American countries with regard to the Arizona legislation, but can you expand sort of this concept of this this more more of a two-way street? Yeah, definitely. So I think one, you know, one other thing I, I say in relation to this in the book is that if we really do come to the conclusion that achieving justice or pursuing justice is this project, not just that we should do with our fellow citizens, but that kind of everyone in the world should be doing together. Um, you know, of course, that may mean that we have 
moral reasons or moral obligations to try to pursue justice or help justice be achieved in other societies. But it also is going to mean that we have moral reasons and perhaps moral obligations to kind of open ourselves up to potentially justice promoting influence uh, from other places in the world, uh, right? And I think that's part of recognizing what I was saying before, that we are all fallible judges about what justice requires. You know, there's no reason to think that um, the United States, for example, has lots to teach everywhere else in the world about justice, but nothing to learn from anywhere else in the world about justice. So I think if we, you know, are really committed to that, that kind of view, this is one conclusion of it that, you know, not only should, um, you know, those, those big powerful countries that we often think of as the interveners, uh, you know, maybe sometimes they should be intervening, but they also should be kind of opening themselves up uh, to, to influences from outside. Uh, in a way that I think, you know, they're often, often reluctant to. <laughs> and, and you have some ideas about how that can happen. Um, can you explain a little bit about how, how that, that can be developed? Because again, you're, 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 you're advocating in the book, it's, it's an interesting advocacy. You're advocating in the book for, for many people globally to take a much different perspective. Um, and, and that's where the political theory comes in also on how do we think about intervention and why intervention? Yeah. So, um, I mean, as far as, you know, ways that we might uh, sort of actualize or operationalize this goal uh, or how we might put it into practice in the real, real world, I mean, I think there are a few things that that we can do in relatively short order. So, I mean, of course, in, in the very long term, you might think, well, we should have some kind of global institutions that will, you know, formally facilitate kind of exchange of information and ideas um, and, you know, maybe making policy uh, that are maybe, you know, more robust and reliable than the global institutions we have now. But I take it that that's, you know, a very, 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 very long-term goal. Um, and so we do need something to kind of be able to say and do in the here and now. Um, and so I do think that, um, you know, looking to, for example, social movements, transnational social movements, I mean, BDS is one, you know, example of that, um, but, but there are others. I think, you know, those are a kind of model maybe of how uh, ideas and, you know, in particular ideas about justice and, you know, strategies, right, political strategies and political mobilization can um, exist in ways that kind of transcend or kind of exist outside of maybe formal international or formal global institutions, but in ways that still cross borders and still, you know, show the potential to kind of produce political changes um, across borders. I also think, you know, we have lots of uh, kind of not only ad advocacy groups, but, you know, NGOs and uh, kind of organizations that produce lots of information about lots of different areas of the world and from the perspectives of, uh, you know, different people around the world. And those are, you know, I think more than ever now kind of readily available to many global political actors. And so another thing that we might think about doing is just to actively seek out, you know, information and ideas and perspectives from um, people in, you know, elsewhere in the world and who are sort of differently situated than us. Uh, and that can be part of, you know, doing our due diligence uh, to try to open ourselves individually and also as societies up to kind of influence um, from elsewhere. And that was, that was actually my next question. Um, and, and so you, you beat me to the punch a little bit there in terms of, because part of what you're at, what you're talking about in terms of a kind of 
sort of individual advocacy is that we should all be involved in thinking about um, how we we personally engage with this question of justice and intervention. Um, and, and again, this is, you know, possibly a tall order. <laughs> um, and, you know, we, we have seen movements like, um, fair labor movements, uh, that are transnational, um, obviously something like BDS, which is, 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 you know, very narrowly focused in terms of an outcome, but, you know, as, is a global reach. Um, can you explain a little bit about how, you know, somebody sitting in suburban Wisconsin um, can sort of activate myself um, according to what you're discussing in the book. Sure. Yes, you're right that I think, you know, there, there should be some kind of individual level uptake to, to these ideas. And I think part of that is just, you know, recognizing the roles that we already often play uh, and occupy in global politics, even if they're you know, often somewhat indirect. Of course, there are, you know, explicitly political moments, right? We choose, you know, who, who to vote for, maybe, you know, we choose what kinds of foreign policies to support um, in, in so far as we have, you know, influence as citizens and voters over that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, also we choose what companies to patronize. We may choose, you know, to donate to a particular charity or NGO and not another one. Uh, you know, we may choose to exercise our, our sort of free speech and, you know, express support or opposition to different proposed interventions. And so I think those are all ways in which even as individuals, you know, we do have some channels open to us to kind of engage with these global political questions. And I think part of what you know, the book is trying to push people to do is to do that in a conscious way and a reflective way um, uh, and, and a way that's kind of, you know, alive to some of the moral questions that, that I think are raised by, by these different kinds of intervention. And, and so one of my questions that follows that is, I mean, I understand the example that you present with regard to BDS, and I understand some of the other examples that you've given, but, you know, something like global climate change seems to be an opportune capacity or opportune issue area for many people in many ways to be involved across borders in trying to promote global climate justice, um, because it is also disadvantaging people who are generally already disadvantaged. Um, can you talk a little bit about something like global climate change as fitting into the, the various theories that you're teasing out here? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that, you know, insofar as it as sort of opposition to, you know, as you call it, climate injustice is an issue of justice. You know, it, it definitely would be or advocacy for climate justice definitely would kind of fall in the scope of, you know, what the, the theory in the book wants to talk about. Um so, uh, for example, there was there was a lawsuit um, by some actors in India against the IFC a few years ago, um, basically, you know, saying that the IFC, uh, which is a, a, a World Bank sort of subsidiary, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, sort of caused a bunch of pollution in this Indian community, which basically threatened their subsistence. 
this is not you know climate change precisely, um, though it, it is sort of environmental justice. Um, and so, I mean, something like that could be a potential you know model for for advocacy around these issues. But I also think, as you were sort of suggesting earlier, you know, just the idea that there could be transnational social movements, uh, as you know, we've seen kind of global protests that have been somewhat coordinated around the idea of climate justice um, and generational justice connected with that. You know, I think that could be another another model and and you know maybe that that's a model also that you know sort of fits into this category of maybe less controlling interventions you know where the, the interveners we want to call them you know the, the social movement activists the protesters are not necessarily um you know forcing in any in in all cases anyone to adopt a particular policy though they're kind of exerting pressure exerting influence um i think another you know interesting thing that we saw uh, you know, after the U.S. kind of withdrew from um, from the Paris Accords, right, we saw some individual cities within the U.S., um, you know, stepping up and saying, you know, actually, we are going to stand by these environmental environmental standards or adopt environmental standards of our own. Um, and so that was maybe another instance in which, um, you know, it, in some cases, you might think it's international insofar as there's solidarity among these, you know, different, maybe different cities around the world. But it's also just an example of, um, you know, maybe the, the the political institutions that you don't normally think of as the big, you know, movers and shakers in this area kind of stepping in um, to, to exert that sort of influence. Um, so I think, you know, in that sense, it's true that global climate change and climate justice present another, um, you know, area that's maybe, you know, ripe to be uh, uh, kind of taken advantage of by some of these other models of, of intervention that aren't the paradigmatic, you know, state military intervention. And you tip your hat in the conclusion to an area that you know you haven't quite had time to go into in the book. So my question for you is, what are you working on now? Yes. Um, so I am working on what I think is a second book project um, on the ethics of resistance in global context. And um, I'm especially interested in the ethics of resistance kind of in communities who are routinely subject to state power and the power of the state system, but also routinely excluded from its exercise. Um, so stateless people, undocumented people, indigenous people, for example. And the hope is to kind of investigate the ethics of resistance in those contexts and use that to tell us something about the legitimacy of perhaps individual states, but also the international state system as a whole. Um, and part of this uh, sort of project is related to, to something that I mentioned at the very end of the book, which is this idea of epistemic injustice. Um, this idea that, you know, there may be certain, um, uh, certain people or certain communities whose ideas about justice are effectively kind of excluded from um, mainstream political conversations about what justice requires. Um, and that can itself be a form of injustice. So sort of indebted to Miranda Fricker's conception of epistemic injustice there. Um, and one idea that I've kind of started working with uh, as part of the second project is that perhaps one uh, way to sort of remedy the epistemic injustice that comes from that exclusion is to have healthy uh, sort of resistance culture or spaces of resistance where people and communities who are sort of excluded from mainstream political institutions 
uh, can develop, formulate, and communicate their ideas about justice kind of on their own terms, um, not necessarily constrained by the rules of those very institutions that sort of exclude them or render their ideas uh, unintelligible. And I think that creating those spaces uh, and, and sort of being open to learning from them is probably going to be part of what we're obligated to do in that uh, endeavor to sort of open ourselves up uh, to knowledge and ideas about justice from elsewhere, from other communities, from other places around the world. Well, I look forward to talking to you about that book once it's completed, if you'll come back on the New Books in Political Science podcast. Yes, of course. That would be great. Thank you. Because it felt like there was like, I felt like there was, you know, um, a to be continued part of (laughs) the book right there at the end. Like, oh, I see what's happening next. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) It's good. It's good news for the second project. Um, I'd like to thank Lucia Raffinali um, for talking to me about promoting justice Across Borders, The Ethics of Reform Intervention, which is published by Oxford University Press in 2021. I assume this is available at the Oxford University Press website. Is there a brick and mortar store that you'd like to give a shout out to? Um, I mean, I'm sure it's available at many academic bookstores. Um, You're right that it is available at the Oxford University Press website. Um, Also, there is a discount code in case people are interested. A-S-F-L-Y-Q-6 will get you 30% off at the Oxford University Press website. All right. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk. It's my pleasure. Lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.